0: were dress shirts. They were always tucked in. They were ironed to the point where I had a little crease running down the sleeve. Um, I ironed my jeans, um, starched them every day. Um, I was dressed to the very best. I I sold clothing at the time. I was consumed with consumerism. Um, Everything about my outfit had to match from my shoes to the top of my head when I had hair then i went to college and in college going from a small town of you know franklin kentucky seven thousand people within the city limits a a high school graduating class of about two hundred students you know you kind of had this mold that i felt like i needed to fit in and then i went to college and at college at western kentucky university i had my own dorm room and I was dating this girl. She was in a cult. Some of you guys know that story. It's a weird one. Um, And then I started having major bouts with depression. I started listening to um, inappropriate music. I've told you guys before my favorite at that time was gangster rap and uh, watching a lot of inappropriate movies. Uh, To many people, I wore a huge smile, but on the inside, I was completely filled with darkness. I was an extremely immature college freshman. I was, Laura would tell you, borderline crazy. Um, And that's what she loved about me, so I don't know what that says about her. (laughs) But anyway, um, and Laura was not the girl I was dating that was in a cult, all right? She was like Baptist or something. She went to Living Hope, actually. So I don't know what that says, but (laughs) there you go. Um, In trying to find myself, um, I... Tried a lot of different things. Now, I didn't go wild and crazy. I wasn't breaking bad and getting drunk all the time and and doing drugs. That's not what I'm talking about. But when Laura first met me, I changed everything about my appearance. Literally, when Laura first met me, um, she loved my royal blue eyes. I don't have blue eyes. I wore blue contacts. I started buying and wearing your grandfather's clothes before Macklemore made that cool with the thrift shop. I started buying all of my clothes at the Goodwill. I started dyeing my hair. I think I've had every color of hair known to man. I had tons of earrings in my ear. I mean, major. I wore fake glasses. All right, this was hipster alternative Weirdo before that became cool and we called it the hipster movement, okay? This is strange and so I mean within a matter of months I went from like this preppy frat boy kid to this very strange set outside of Garrett Kind of person (laughs) all right if you have gone to Western all right Um, It was just a really interesting thing now in the midst of that identity crisis Jesus saved me. In the midst of that craziness of four years of really trying to figure out who I was as a person, where I was going, and what my identity was, Jesus saved my life and changed everything about me. And to this day, being at Western Kentucky University is some of the best times of my life. Jesus showed me so much of who he was and what Christian community and all of those things were about. And again, I would suggest to you that we are struggling as a church and we're struggling as Christians to once again kind of make a transition to figure out who we are. But ultimately, what the gospel and who Jesus declares that we are. See, in America, like the video says, we we don't kind of define our identity in, in who we are. We find our identity in what we do. Have you ever noticed when you meet somebody for the first time, you ask them their name typically? And then the second question that you usually say is, what do you do? Man, this is very, very typical, especially amongst the males within the room. We have a tendency to find much of our identity in the job that we hold. I can't tell you how many of my friends, even my own father, who have lost their jobs periodically. And in doing so, it caused great depression to, to rise up in several of these men because they felt unvaluable. They felt like they had lost their way. They became deeply depressed. Why? Because the essence of who they were or are is wrapped up in what they do. This is extremely tough. What, what happens when you're a student and you graduate from college? What happens when you're a mom and your identity is wrapped up in being a mom and then they go off to college? In 1981, there was this great movie that came out. I hope that you have seen it. It's called Chariots of Fire. And it's based on the true story of two dudes, two runners. I think I have a picture of them, actually. This is... Harold Abraham. Some of you may have heard of this story, and this is Eric Little. And in this movie, it is based on the true story of what took place in around 1920s um, about these two guys, and they were essentially considered to be the fastest men in England. And the story of Chariots of Fire tells kind of about this rivalry um, between these two runners leading up to the 1924 Olympics. And it's just, it's a great film. There's some great books written about these two men as well. But what's interesting about this that's going to connect to our sermon today is Harold Abraham, go figure, was a Jew. And this is during major anti I lost my word, anti Semitism, um, was really coming against him. And it believed to really fuel his desire to run on the flip side of that you had this guy named eric little and eric little he was a christian he was born in china to missionary parents he went to christian school a firm firm believer in jesus to the point that if there was a race on a sunday he would not run in it because he considered it to be the Sabbath. Everything this man did was directed toward the glory and honor of God. Harold here came from a very wealthy family and also had coaches and everything. It was a very scientific approach to running. And if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, he had no scientific approach whatsoever. It was actually quoted, I think, from Harold Abraham that that Eric Little ran like a wild animal. And the movie actually really portrays that very, very well. If I was to play the soundtrack for Chariots of Fire, even if you haven't seen the movie, you would know the music for sure. But this interesting, uh, leading up to this competition, they were obviously doing a lot of interviews and different things, and they began to ask, you know, why are you running in the Olympics? Why do you want to do this? Because the Olympics back then were not what we would consider them to be today. A reporter asked Harold Abraham, and reflecting on his goals of why he wanted to win the Olympics, he says, I have 60 seconds to justify my existence. I heard him say in an interview that I was watching this week, I wanted to prove to everyone through running my superiority. See, everything for Harold Abraham was built around this one race, that he was going to prove his legacy, and he was a phenomenal athlete. You can do the research. This man did phenomenal things in several different areas in athletics. But he was conditioned, focused. His identity, who he was, was simply based on these 60 seconds. They asked Eric, little the same question and and he responded this way he said this god made me fast and when i run i feel his pleasure see there was a a major difference between the way that these two men saw their running One was they found their significance, they found their identity in the actual running. The other one found their significance in whom God had made them. See, a biblical understanding of the gospel, of of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a community of faith, is not found in what we do. And this is extremely important for us to get this week. For the rest of Peter, we're going to talk about what do we do as Christians. And so if we don't get this today, if we don't understand that our community of faith, you as a Christian, is not defined by what you do, though there is a lot to do, we are defined by who or whom God has made us to be. We do things because it is our very godly nature that he has placed inside of us. Doing things doesn't make you godly. Being godly makes you do certain things. And so here in a few weeks, we're going to talk about government. Vote for Trump, right? I mean, that's what we're going to do here is be very political and tell you who to vote for. No. But we are going to tell you how to handle government, politics, all those sorts of things. Here in a few weeks after that, we're going to talk about marriage. Wives, get your husbands here. I'll beat up on them for you a little bit, okay? We're going to talk about what it means to be a gospel-centered family. All of these things are what we do in a society that is heading in an opposite direction. How do we find our identity when we speak and deal with all of those different issues? Man, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you will quickly see that the Israelites— Um, were heavily influenced by the culture around them. They experienced major identity crisis throughout the Old Testament. They were immersed in a culture that God was trying to separate them from. But what typically took place was whoever the Jews were around, they began to absorb their beliefs, their attitudes, and their actions into their belief system. It was a major, major, major issue for them, even to the point where it caused them to lose their identity. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to go back to the Old Testament real quickly here, to 2 Kings. I know you woke up. This is what you read every week, you know, 2 Kings, just over and over and over again. But I've been reading through the Old Testament, and and reading through the Old Testament, if you have ever read 2 Kings before, over and over and over, it tells you who the leader was, and then it tells you whether or not they were faithful to God's call, that they did what God had commanded them to do, or that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. These are the rulers of the Jewish people. Some of them followed God. A majority of them did what was evil. But why did they do what was evil? They absorbed and became like the people and the cultures around them. Specifically, um, if we were to, to look at this passage um, in chapter 16, 2 Kings chapter 16. I'm going to read one quick passage here and then take you over to 17. Listen to how these, these rulers, they are the people of God... talking about king ahaz here says this (coughs) verse 2 ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 16 years in jerusalem and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the lord his god as his father david had done but he walked in the way of the kings of israel he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, God has set apart the people of Israel. He has set them apart to, to be a blessing, to be like unlike any other nation that is on the planet. A lot of times he would go into a city, right? And he would say, once you destroy this city, make sure you destroy everything. Destroy all of their statues, all their gods. Burn this place and start over. Because why? If there is one inclination, that there is something from these pagan believers in that city, eventually you're going to start worshiping it. He goes on over in chapter 17. Listen to what God does. Verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced and the people of Israel did secretly against (coughs) the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in their own towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars of ashram on every high hill and every, under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and the prophets. Verse 14. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after their false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all their commandments of the Lord their God and made themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah which is a phallic symbol and worshiped all of the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Do you see what's taking place? Instead of being obedient... Instead of following the commands of God, instead of acting like the elect children of God, they began to absorb and to reflect whatever was around them as a people. These are the Jews of the Old Testament. But what do we know? Even as the church, that our tendency, our drift... Is, is to also do the exact same thing. Our tendency as the American church is to absorb and to reflect the very culture around us when God has called us to live very differently from this world. Whoops. I was told about that. So in doing so, It becomes extremely difficult for us to define who we are as followers of Jesus when those of us who are part of the American church are all having a major identity crisis. Man, what do we do and who are we when, when we're outnumbered? When our views, our practices, our beliefs become unpopular... And our identity becomes extremely blurry. Man, if I was to toss out grenades today, like, man, are Christians, are we supposed to only vote Republican? Can, can Christians be Democrats? Are, are we supposed to, to support homosexual marriage? Because, again, you'll, you will find Christians who claim to be Republicans, you will find... Christians who claim to be independents and, and Democrats, and you'll find people who claim to be Christians who will fully support homosexual marriage, uh, multiple divorces, all of these sorts of things. I mean, what do we do about guns or racial issues or immigration or refugees? All of these sorts of culture cultural questions that we are constantly being bombarded with causes us to really become confused at who we are at who we are this is my personal opinion this isn't thus say of the lord but i think that we have strayed way away from what it means to be biblical community to be the church and in doing so is not only confusing for us but it is also extremely confusing for the world extremely difficult for them to determine and for us to determine who it is that we are and what we're supposed to be doing. So Peter knows all about this about his church and these churches that are are gathered here. He knows that this is their tendency, and and I'm not here to say that the church necessarily, um, you know, takes the place of israel i don't know if i can go that far but i I would say this because we're going to see this in just a second the natural tendencies of israel in the old testament is the natural tendency of us as the church in the new and now and also the promises that we see in the Old Testament that was given to Israel are also the promises that are fulfilled in the New Testament church and for us as well. So he, he knows all of this. And he goes into here and he's, he's contrasting, right, these people who don't believe with believers. And in verse 9 he says, but you are a chosen race. So he's going to define this identity. He's going to define these people of God. He's going to define the church. He is going to give them clarity in their identity. Because if you don't know who you are, then what you do is going to be all wrong. And so who does he say? He says, but you. Who is the you here? It is the church. And who is the church? He's going to tell us. He's going to say that they are a chosen race. A chosen Race In contrast with those who are destined for eternal destruction, that's verse 8, followers of Jesus, you and I, people who have been radically changed by Jesus, this morning you should be encouraged to this understanding and the realization that you are a chosen race. Now Peter is a good Christian. Peter knows his Old Testament. So again, he's going to go back to the Old Testament, pointing it toward and seeing it fulfilled in the church. So in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through nine, I think I have this one on the slide for you guys. This is what it says: "For you are a people, a holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you are, were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you. For you are fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that this Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So, Peter knows something about the church, that the Old Testament promises given to Israel are fulfilled in the church, in the community of faith, in the believers. And so these things that that were said of Israel are said of the church. And so he borrows, he takes that, and he shows us, and he declares that our identity from God to us is that we are a chosen race. A chosen race. Chosen by whom? By God. Because we're the prettiest? No. Because we outnumber the people on the planet? No. But simply because out of great love and compassion, God has done this. God wants this chosen people, this chosen race, to illustrate these promises to the world In the Old Testament, God did this through Abraham and his descendants. Here, Peter is stating that this race of people, this chosen people, is not from Abraham, but we are from Jesus. This morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, being chosen by God is not something that should cause fear to swell up within us. It is not a position of pride either, but we should be reminded this morning that being chosen by God is and should place within us great humility. I can show you scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture pointing to you that salvation is the sole work of God by Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This truth is pride crushing. Crushing. It should never cause within us to, to swell with arrogance in our election, but more appropriately, fall to our knees in complete awe. Election does not create fear in the believer, it creates honor for God, holiness of life, assurance of salvation, and a peace that passes all. See, so, yeah, as a father, I can understand this, I love all of your kids, but I have a special affection and a chosen affection for two children, Cash and Ava. They are my beloved, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine, and his banner, as scripture would tell us, his banner over us is Love. See this morning we didn't invite Jesus as Scotty Smith said, I didn't invite Jesus into my heart. He gave me a new one. He gave you a new heart. Okay? We like to come up with these Christian ease of stating these sorts of statements, but may we be reminded of the magnitude of God's grace. I was undeserving of this choosing. It's not like PE growing up where you're the most athletic guy and you go first and the scrub gets picked last. Guess what? We are the scrubs, Jesus is number one we are the scrubs and we the bible tells us in the book of ephesians that we are children of wrath the bible also tells us in the book of romans that while we were yet sinning god died for us jesus died for the scrub he died For the wretched individual, he died and chose you, causing great humility to come within us to remind us of the magnitude of God's grace that has been placed into our lives. We have nothing to boast of except for the person and work of Jesus to claim his cross, his resurrection, and to find our identity in that truth when all the world is going to hell around us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this doctrine. That's the beauty of this truth. He calls us a chosen race. Remember, Peter starts this letter by stating the diversity amongst the people that are going to be reading this. If you are to read 1 Peter verse 1 where he tells us, elect exiles in all of these different places. Race. To refer to race is a division of mankind possessing traits that are transmissible by descent. We ask the question, like, who's your daddy, right? Whose line did this come from? We come from the line of Abraham. But as believers, we come from the line of Christ. Race. A sufficient to to characterize it it as a distinct human type. Believers should be recognizable as a distinct human type race defines a class or kind of people unified by community of interest habits and characteristics see ladies and gentlemen there's a lot of racial issues within our time that we are living in and it's been that way for hundreds if now not thousands of years racism is a real problem it is satanic it is demonic it is from hell itself I'm not saying that God doesn't see color. I believe that he does, and we should as well, because he sees them as beautiful. He sees them created in the image of God. But you need to get this this morning. The cross and the resurrection divided all of humanity into two races, believers and non-believers. And in that, there is a deep connection, not based on the color of skin, but the status of our hearts. He goes on to tell us here, again, he's quoting Scripture from Exodus chapter 19. What is the other adjective that he calls us here? A chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is Exodus chapter 19. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, again, Peter is taking something from the Old Testament, a truth that was promised to the people of Israel, and all of a sudden he is equating those same truths. Those truths are being fulfilled in the church, in the community of faith, in the believer. These truths are to give us hope. We are a royal Priesthood. We don't simply have one or two priests making intercession for us, but we, as the community of faith, intercede on each other's behalf, knowing through the power of the Holy Spirit and the working of Jesus, we have an ultimate high priest, and our high priest is king, therefore making his children royalty as well. And so we pastorally care for each other as that community of faith. This is our identity. It's what makes us the church. It's what makes us the people of God is what he has declared about us. That we're chosen, that we're royal priesthood, and that we are a holy nation. I told you several sermons ago in this passage in chapter 1 where he tells us there... Be holy, or you shall be holy, for I am holy. Essentially, what God is declaring about himself when we use the term holiness is that he is saying, I am eternally unique. I am eternally different than everything and anyone that you have ever known. And so he's declaring to us not a decree of perfection because we had that in Jesus, He's declaring to us, and he's declaring to this church, he's declaring to us this morning that we are a holy nation. What does that mean? That we, as the people of God, should live and be very unique compared to the rest of this world. And when those lines get blurred, when the church starts acting like the world, we're in a bad place. When those lines get blurred, we stop ceasing to fulfill what God has called us to do and ultimately to be. Be unique. Why? For I am unique. I'm unique. There's this really bad video that you can watch. I think it's called Thief in the Night. It's like from the 1970s or 80s and they used to show it in youth group a lot. Anybody ever seen it before? Thief in the Night? It's like it's like scare you into heaven kind of videos. Like, I think these kids have like a car crash, right? And it's like four high school students and they all stand at the judgment of God. And like several of them don't make it. They weren't Christians and several of them are. But they allow these people to have conversations at the throne of God. And so the non-Christians are looking at the Christians and they're saying, You're a Christian? We had no idea. Why didn't you tell me? So everybody's watching the videos like, I'm terrible. uh, My friends are going to go to hell. I better share the gospel and then no one ever does it, right? Because the emotionalism just goes out the window with the popcorn, all right? That's the struggle. See, ladies and gentlemen, the the issue is, is that we're going to see this with both word and deed that the world, your coworkers, should not be surprised that you're a follower of Jesus. If anything, they should be annoyed that you love Jesus so much, that you want them to know the gospel, that you illustrate the gospel. Why, though? Because it is who you are, it's your identity, it's I, our identity. When we lose our uniqueness as the people of God, we lose who we are. Verse 10. Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Quickly. Man, if you've ever read the book of Hosea, I want to encourage you. I use it as a sermon illustration a lot. Because it's just a phenomenal story of this mighty man of God named Hosea. And he marries a prostitute. On all sorts of levels, I've got so many questions about that. And on so many levels, Hosea is a much better dude than I am. But he does this to rescue this woman. And she begins to have illegitimate children outside of the home. Like this lady is immersed in this culture of prostitution. She begins to have illegitimate children, and Hosea begins to name his children, and he names one of the children, No Mercy. Right? He names another one of the illegitimate children, "Um, Not My People. Alright? So, let me introduce you to the family today. This is not or no mercy and not my people, baker, <laughs> right? I mean, it, major issues here. Like this is, this is cash baker, this is no mercy baker, right? I mean, it's an interesting way to introduce your children, but this beautiful story in the book of Hosea and, and Gomer is that, that Gomer gives herself so much that she ends up on the slave block about to be sold into sex slavery again. And her husband, her faithful husband, faithful to God and faithful to her, shows up at the slave block and buys his own wife. He buys her. And in doing so, changes the name of those kids to Mercy and My People. What a beautiful story. What a remarkable story of God's mercy and grace. And like I always like to throw this zinger in there, is before we get riled up of thinking that we are Hosea, maybe you be reminded and I be reminded this morning that every one of us are Gomer. And the gospel of grace is, is that Jesus, why He finds us, and it may not be sexual sin, but He found you some way. Disgusting. Wretched, full of sin. And He chose you, and He bought you with the blood of Jesus. So Peter reminds this church who is shaking in their boots at losing who they are. And he reminds them, because immediately a lot of these people would have been a Jewish, now Christians. They would have known this story, and they would have equated, and they would have said, "What you were once not my people, but now you are my people. Once you did not have mercy, but you have received mercy. This beautiful picture of our identity, who we have in Jesus, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're now filled with mercy. We were once not His people, but now we are His What a beautiful introduction this morning. In a time where it would be really easy for us to go wayward, we are reminded about the greatness and the goodness of God. If you're taking notes, write down this address, and I'm going to read it to you, John chapter 15, 16. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture that I often come back to a lot of times. Especially when I get down, when I get lost in my responsibility as a follower of Jesus, if anything that God has taught me in planting Mission Church or being involved in planting Mission Church, one of the greatest teachers that this community of faith has been toward me is, is the struggle that I, I have in finding my identity in Mission Church. And it's these passages that I've read to you today, and this passage that I'm going to read to you continue to remind me. My identity is not in this church. My identity is not being an artist. My identity is not being a, an instructor at Western. My identity is in Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 16, he, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in closing this morning. And this is what he says. He says, because again, we all kind of think we're big shots. We all think that we, this is about us. In John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And guess what he did? And this is going to lead us into next week. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you so these disciples who are probably becoming arrogant jesus looks at them and he says guess what you didn't you didn't choose me bro i chose you and in choosing you i have appointed that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide i had this this math teacher algebra teacher and it's one of the reasons why i probably hate math to this day But she used to use this illustration all the time. She'd be like comparing math, and then she'd start talking about fruit. And she would say things like, well, you just can't compare oranges and apples. That's like trying to do that, and you can't. you got to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Now, on my way in this morning, I picked up two apples. These are red-delicious apples. Is there some diversity there? Yes, they're, they're different shapes, different sizes. They could even possibly taste different. One may be sweeter, uh, one may not be. And um, But these are both red, delicious apples. It is the breed that they are. It is the, um, the type that they are. Their identity is they are both red, delicious. Though diverse, they are... The exam type. Their identity is red, delicious apple. Now, what's interesting about that is what makes them red, delicious apples? What makes them that type? What gives them that identity? Though diverse. See, we like to spend a lot of time polishing this. But this is all determined by the tree that it's connected to. See, it's it's a red, delicious tree that makes it red, delicious apple. It's not the other way around. This is the fruit of the tree. Jesus often equates this, right? The fruit of of the vine, I am the vine, you are the the branches, you are the fruit-bearing portions, but I I am what determines this, you can't, Get good fruit from a bad tree, Jesus says. See, it's, it's the truth, it's where it's centered in that determines the fruit. And what does Jesus remind us here in this passage? He tells them, I have chosen you, and because I have chosen you, you will bear much fruit. And what gets really confusing for us is when we're trying to do this hodgepodge mixture like from the cover of Freakonomics if you've read that book. We're trying to blend an orange and an apple to be a little bit of the world and be a a little bit about Jesus and yet Jesus says it's pretty disgusting to Him. See, we are whom we are attached to. Our identity is found in our rootedness, where we find our home, where we find our security. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants Peter, and He wants Peter to tell these people, and I think Peter is telling us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm proclaiming that to all of us here today, is this. In the midst of troubling times, do not forget who He declares that you are. And I think that's going to solve a lot of problems within Christianity. I think it's going to solve a lot of problems within our home. It's going to solve a, a lot of problems within our city. Why? Because of what He tells us in these passages. The reason for all of these identities is that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. When you realize who you are, or ultimately who you were, but who He declares that you are, our worship with our lives is a natural byproduct of our identity. May we be reminded of that this morning. May we find hope and truth in that this morning. As we go forward talking about now, what do we do because of who we are? May it all come back to this. May it all be in view of this so that we don't just become work-based, legalistic, fundamentalist, hardcore, achieve-your-salvation type of people. If anything, Peter reminds us before he goes into all of that, what do we do now? That work-based salvation isn't salvation. But because of salvation, we now have work to do. If you would, bow your heads with me let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this opportunity, for this day. We thank you for your teaching in our lives.